Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You bird of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's the word of God. I want to begin with the question, um, what motivates you to mature? Uh, I think I've asked this question as a sermon starter before, probably more than a few times. Um, But it's an important question to keep coming back to, even if you're not Christian. I'm hoping that you want to become a better person, a more mature person. Um, But if you want to get a handle on growing as a person, you really need to get under uh, uh, maturing actions and, and really get to your motivation. So what motivates you to mature? I'm thinking that all of us, uh, we have different motivations, some better, some not, but uh, if we're honest, some of us, we mature because we have a hope for reward, or on the flip side, same side, or other side of the same coin, we fear punishment. Uh, If I'm just completely honest, early in my marriage, uh, I behaved well by doing the dishes and doing chores and so forth. I, I, I was good that way because I wanted sports time with my buddies, if I'm just honest. And so what motivated me to mature was a hope for reward. Uh, And not that Linda was like this, but just in my mind, okay, I don't want to get in trouble either, right? And some of us are like that, whether at home, at work, rewards, bonuses, promotions, or not getting fired, or not being under the ire of your boss is what matures us, or at least makes us appear mature and act mature. For some of us, we are lusting, just longing for some kind of pleasure in our lives, This could be in the form of a person. You want so much that person in your life or some experience that you're willing to act a certain way to be able to get that pleasure. Or, uh, other side of the same coin, for some of us, we are so undone by pain. We've hit rock bottom and we've realized, okay, I can't go on living like this anymore. And because there's so much pain in our lives, we're willing to change how we behave. For some of us, we we are a lot more big picture oriented and we see we're living in a system or at work, okay, I see how this works. And so you're willing to act a certain way, you're willing to function a certain way because it's advantageous for you and it will put you in a place of advantage and flip side to avoid disadvantage. And for some of us, it's just simply about how we want to feel about ourselves. We, some of us, we feel so guilty if we disappoint someone or behave a certain way, and because on the flip side we want to feel good about ourselves and avoid those, those ugly feelings of guilt and shame, we mature. Now, all these, if you just judge a tree by its fruit, then these are good motivations if they produce good behavior, but you need to admit with me 
that this is all just cosmetic. It's just surface behavior management. You're just managing how you act based on <clears throat> certain motivations, but it's not really changing who you are on the inside. And what the Gospel invites us to, and not only invites us to, but in fact requires, is that we don't just live by cosmetic behavior management, but that we really experience an inner heart transformation. That's something from deep inside shifts. And from deep inside our souls, the way we look out onto the world from, from inside us, there from, it works outward the way we change, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves differently. As a summary of what I think John the Baptist is getting at today in today's passage, I want to offer this prayer. And if you could learn to pray the gist of this prayer uh, with me in your own life. Lord, may Your Spirit keep transforming my heart with Your Gospel. That's the essence. That's a distillation of true Christian change. True Christian maturation. That we look to the Lord that it's Him ultimately in His grace that is uh, affecting this change in our lives. But how? By His Spirit, but not just some you know, fluffy, new-agey, mystical spirit connection, but specifically, concretely, as He applies the Gospel of Christ to our hearts more and more. That's how we'll experience genuine Christian transformation from the heart. So I, I think today's passage, uh, it produces the question, it's fair to ask this question of the text, how does the gospel transform my heart? I think we see some of this in today's passage today. So let's get into the text. First, how does the gospel transform my heart? Good news, the gospel calls everyone out equally. Okay? I want you to be first encouraged by this. This is an encouragement. This is telling of the wide, immense, borderless love of God for everyone. As John was preaching and preaching his baptism, he called out everyone. It drew everyone to him. And where do we see this? As we pick up Matthew's narrative, in verse 7, conjunctions are important in the Bible. We have to pay attention to conjunctions, those small little connector words. And when Matthew writes, but when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and there is a distinction. Matthew is setting up a stark contrast, like black and white. Here's John in the poor man's garb, eating a poor man's diet, living ascetically in the wilderness, coming with uh, just an intense message of God to repent and to turn and that the kingdom of his is at hand and living simply and frugally and with devotion and trying to truly walk the talk. Matthew is contrasting John to the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'll introduce these two groups of people a bit more uh, in a moment. But just know that they were opulent. They were the high and mighty. They wielded power and status in society. And they could not be more antithetical to John than anyone else in the society at the time. But here's the point. Here's the picture that Matthew is painting for us. The Gospel, albeit that these Pharisees and Sadducees, I imagine that some came with pure motives to sincerely investigate who is this new prophet and this message that he's preaching, but some also came insincerely with ulterior motives, maybe just to check out their competition who is vying for the people's attention. But the point is this, that the gospel is being preached 
and it's drawing out everyone. Everyone across the spectrum, socioeconomically and spiritually and so forth. And so Matthew is comparing and contrasting these people to John the Baptist, but meaning this gospel is for everyone. Now, even within the Pharisees and Sadducees, the point that the gospel calls everyone out equally is all the more supported. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees, as leaders, cannot be more different as well. And if you wanted to liken them to, uh, we have our own Canadian election coming up, the Pharisees, loosely speaking, would be like the conservatives, if you wanted to categorize them politically and just sort of their ethos. And the Sadducees were more like the liberals, okay? I hope uh, this table will help you understand who these people are a bit more. The Pharisees were one party, political, religious party. The Sadducees were another. And together, when you see the term Sanhedrin in the Gospels or in Acts, uh, it refers to, it's, it's analogous to our House of Commons. And so the House of Commons back then, the Sanhedrin was made up of these two parties that ruled together, and at the time, the premier, so to speak, was from the Sadducee party. Now the Pharisees, they really emphasized the law, and in addition to the law, they made up their own laws, their oral tradition, and they made you feel small if you, didn't, if you broke even the smallest little law. They had that uh, just snooty, uh, high-nosed, self-righteous air about them. But in contrast to the Sadducees, where they took a little read reading of Scripture, but that reading led them to be more, quote-unquote, scientific. And in that sense, kind of like the, the liberals in that sense, or our secular society. They were more skeptical. They rejected the spiritual world. They rejected the afterlife. They rejected resurrection. And whereas the Pharisees in that sense were more charismatic, they believed in the spiritual world. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the demonic and angels and so forth. Now, overall, the effect was that both these parties, whether you're Pharisaical or part of the Sadducees, um, you, you created this, this class system. You created the inside people and the outside people. And you made people feel smaller for not being part of your group. The Pharisees, overall, they, in all their power, and just power always has this temptation to corrupt us with their power and their religious authoritarian, uh, authoritarian stick that they were uh, beating people with. They became inwardly corrupt, sectarian, hypocritical, and self-righteous. And whereas the Sadducees, they, they, had, they gave off similar vibes, but for different reasons, because they were the social elite. And the Sadducees also happened to be uh, the wealthy, the aristocrats. And again, as I said already, they boasted the high priest at the time. They, they boasted having the premier, so to speak, of Israel. But the point is this. I want you to see that the gospel calls out everyone equally. The gospel was for both the left-wingers and the right-wingers. Christianity is not just for morally more conservative people. Christianity is for everyone. And really, everyone, whether you're more liberal or more conservative, you can be judgmental towards the other side. And I'm not just talking politically, but just a general sort of vibe in your life as you go about your life and, and your thoughts of other people. 
Remember, we're asking the big question, how does the gospel transform my heart? And, and what I want you to see first here is that the gospel, first as a comfort, something to woo you towards Christ, is that this gospel is trying to, it's pursuing everyone. doesn't matter what background you're from, whether poor or rich, left or right. The gospel is for everyone. God's heart is for everyone. Next, the gospel calls out uh, God users, God manipulators. We're asking the question, how does the gospel transform my heart? And we need to think about this for a bit. Because if your approach to God is to manipulate him, to think that he is this cosmic vending machine where if you just throw in the change and coins of prayer and good works and trying to be a good person, that he owes you, he owes you answers to your prayer. He owes you a good life. He owes you health and wealth and so forth. You are using God. And even long-time Christians, that attitude can creep into our hearts. And where do I see this? John, as he sees these, the Sanhedrin coming, and John pulled no punches. And he just spoke it frankly, not mince words. And he said to them, you brood of vipers. What a welcome to church, right? You brood of vipers. In the ancient world, it was said that vipers, they were so venomous in just their, their characteristics that baby vipers would even eat their way out of their mother's tummies. And so this is, this is the, the, the intensity of John calling them vipers, that you are a child of a viper. You are this little family cluster of, of vipers. But also there's the point, vipers and, and snakes, on one hand, if you look at them, at them a certain way, they, they're beautiful, they glisten from the outside. There's something very uh, attractive or, or just intriguing about them. But on the inside, there's venom. And so that is how John is addressing them because of overall the way they related to the rest of society and the self-righteousness, the self-assuredness that they had. And now he asks very sarcastically, with some surprise even, all mixed up into this question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So John the Baptist, in this one question, he was a master of words and knew how to throw zingers, very clever sarcasm and, and even weaving in some surprise there. John the Baptist was indicting and, and surprised at the Pharisees and Sadducees' attendance because he knew that they were smug. They were smug first in their self-righteousness and self-assuredness of being right with God. They thought that if anyone is right with God in, in this nation, in this world, it's us. They were smug in that. And so John is sarcastically asking, you guys all of a sudden think that you need to be saved from the wrath of God? I thought you guys thought you're all right with God. Why are you here? You don't need this. But he's also pointing out to them, as you come here, I hope you're, this is the first step, the first correct step towards understanding that you have a mistaken definition of an outward works-oriented salvation. That you can actually do enough good, have enough status, be connected to the right people to be saved by God. Essentially, he was saying, hey, Pharisees, Sadducees, up to now, you've been just trying to use God. In fact, you have been using religion and God for your own benefit. You've been 
uh, extorting money from people. You've been with your religious power and so forth. You've been using God for your own benefit. And so the gospel is calling out God users. Now, let's not be so self-righteous to think that we don't have streaks of Pharisaism or or Sadducee-like attitudes in our heart. Maybe it's not as overt as these groups during Jesus' time. But even in my own heart, I know that there are streaks of that. That God owes me something. Or that, that God, if I walk a certain way in my life, if I, because I'm a pastor, God, that you have certain extra favor on me because I'm doing all this for you. No. The gospel equalizes everyone and calls everyone equally. And the gospel calls out, calls out any wrong attitude of using God. And this is because the old covenant misunderstood would lead to this attitude. The old covenant that set these standards and laws to live up to, to be right with God, to be holy and cleansed before Him, the, the, the side effect is that, well, then I have to do this more. I have to be like this more. And so we think that if we can just climb up that religious ladder, that God will bless us. The gospel is here to call that out. How does the gospel transform our hearts? So we, we need to admit these first two points. Now also realize what the gospel is about is that it wants to remake religion from the inside out. Let's redeem the word religion. Let, let's, let's use religion as the beautiful word that God always meant it to be. There's a good and pure religion. And where churches or other religions have a, a, a hard-handed, heavy-handed, making you feel small and guilty and shameful for not living up to religious standards, I, I like to use the word religiosity for that kind of religion. That is not true religion. That is abused religion, mutilated and mutated religion. But there is a good and pure religion relating to God and living as He would have us. And the Gospel comes to remake that and to invite us to live that beautifully religious life. But it's from the inside out. And John takes every opportunity to preach the Gospel. And so he preaches to this audience here, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so here's a summary of how to live out the gospel. What the gospel is and how we are, what, what wonderful effects and fruit it's supposed to have in our lives. Repentance, remember, we corrected the def- definition of repentance last week. It's not just to grovel and feel guilty and, and shameful, but it's an inner shift. It's a complete worldview shift. It's a completely, just putting, if you had one set of, one prescription of lenses, you take that off and then you put on a completely new one. And it clarifies how you look out onto the world. That is repentance. A change of mind, a change of heart, an affection, your emotional attachments towards God, towards God-centeredness. And if God is truly at the center of our lives, then it affects different conduct, and and that's what John means by bearing fruit. And John, he keeps belaboring this point by saying to, especially the religious leaders here, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
They thought they were saved by their bloodline, by their ethnicity. Again, it's an outward quality, an outward merit. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So I love what J.R. Miller says about repentance. Repentance amounts to nothing, whatever, if it produces only a few tears, a spasm of regret, a little fright. We must leave the sins we repent of and walk in the new, clean ways of holiness. This, this definition or this thought of repentance is, is on the right track. It can't just be a cosmetic behavior management thing. But something deep inside needs to shift. So I love what was able to see an old seminary professor at a, at a seminar yesterday. D.A. Carson, he said yesterday, uh, talking about a similar idea, that, that doctrine, doctrine basically what we believe must be adorned with how we live. Right? It's not just about having the right thoughts even. There has to be an inner transformation because of how we look out onto the world anew. And just to convince you all the more, if you're not convinced yet, this has been God's intention from the beginning to when Christ came, when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, to until He returns. Because He foreshadowed this. He prophesied this through His prophet Ezekiel. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. And God foretelling that He will sprinkle clean water on His people. A foreshadow of baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. See, he's trying to get to the heart. Idols are a matter of the heart. What your heart is so obsessively attached to that you elevate it to the level of God in your life. And I will give you a new heart that cannot be clear. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft, tender heart. And I will put my spirit within you. Obviously, to the very concrete people here, he's not talking about a, an organic heart muscle that is beating. He's talking about your spirit. And even a heart of flesh, it's a metaphor for a soft, a teachable attitude and spirit and will before God. And I will put my spirit within you, his Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Put it very colloquially, that the Holy Spirit, when it comes to loving God and loving our neighbor in this world, they will become want-tos, not have-tos or ought-tos. That will be the effect of the gospel and the Spirit applying Christ to our lives. Now, John, I appreciate him and, and the commentaries that I was reading this week, all the commentators, they, they all paused at a point and said, Preachers, you need to take a note out of John's uh, preaching book here. Because John, he pulls back no punches. And he does not apologize for painting a clear picture of eternity. The gospel is no joke when it comes to eternity. If our hearts are going to be transformed, then we need to have a clear, sober view of life after this life. Now let me be clear, and very clear. God, 
He is not a, a manipulator who tries to force you into his kingdom by scaring you. No, in fact, if you read the whole Bible, the Apostle John makes clear that perfect love drives out all fear. But nevertheless, to have a clear picture of heaven and hell, that there is God and he has ordained that there are only two eternities, one under the wrath of God and his punishment for eternity, or the other to be reconciled, not just minimally, not just a civil relationship anymore uh, with those he was at odds with once, but a fully reconciled, fully restored, being welcomed as his beloved children and being put on a restored new earth and doing life as he always meant it to be before sin entered. These are the pictures of eternity that John himself is alluding to. And we're not meant to be manipulated by fear and being scared into placing our faith in Christ. But there is wisdom. I mean, just even in this world, I respect those people who can think long term, who can plan well for their retirements, who can save money for whatever necessities and purchases in life, who, who think through uh, all the consequences, who are master contingency planners, and therefore can pick, make the right choice that is most wise with the greatest benefit and results. I respect that kind of long-term thinking, but we need to think even beyond that kind of long-term thinking and think eternally, eternally minded. And so John here, he, he is very forceful and has a very uh, intense analogy, an intense picture. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so there is a picture of, of an axe, and, and here is, is, is a small axe, a hatchet. And I just want to display this because just even looking at this is intimidating. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm sure even some of you here who are a bit more prone to anxiety is like, is he crazy? <laughs> you know, is, he gonna, is he safe with that? But the, the imagery of John is this violent, intense image. That there's this tree, I wanted to bring a tree, but I, I couldn't make that happen. <laughs> and just picture this, this axe, this hatchet, coming at this tree. Now, we need to first, we need to take away two things from John using this picture. First, the force of it. Again, the intention here is not to scare tactic us, but to soberly think. It's akin to, look, just any other wise choice you need to make in life, you it's wise to paint the consequences. And that informs a wise decision and, and you want to do it out of the right heart to pursue goodness in your life. And that's what John's motive here is. So, but there's a force to his picture here. But also, we do need to recognize here that he is specifically addressing God's people first. Even in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God's people is compared to a tree many times. A shoot. And first God is saying, especially to the religious leaders of his people, look, don't think that you can be saved by your outside-in merit. This is not a meritocracy. Well, it is ultimately at the end, at the end of the day, but it's the merit of only one person, Jesus Christ. And you need to be united by faith to Christ. And a sign of that is that 
You are seeking His Spirit to fill you and to have your heart transformed from the inside out. Now, again, you might think, phew, I am not of Israel. (laughs) So this analogy isn't for me. This warning isn't for me. But I think, no, there is applicable, analogous uh, application to 2019 in the church. The church needs to heed this image. Because the church as well, we could very well, and sadly in church history, there have been lots of churches who have promoted and created a culture where you think that you have to do enough good or you're you even the churches become power centers, power play and, and politics and places where people feel good about themselves because they have a certain label and they climb up the church ladder and so forth. And so the warning is for us as well that we never fall into the deception, the misunderstanding of how God wants to relate to us, that it's not an outside in using God for our own benefits and our own status and self-esteem, but know that we're looking to God to transform us from the inside out and that our lives genuinely display the fruit of the Spirit and walking with Christ. And so John, again, excellent preacher. He, he doesn't leave his listeners wanting. He points them to the answer. How does the gospel transform our hearts? We need to learn from John's little encounter with uh, the Sanhedrin here that the gospel connects us to the Holy Spirit. And so he explains towards the end, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is just a, a, an outward symbol Don't think that you're saved by this outward symbol because then you're just going back to the old misunderstanding of how to be right with God. But he who is coming after me, meaning Jesus Christ, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's just a, 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 a contextual during his time, just an imagery of a servant. That he is not even worthy to be Christ's servant. Not even worthy to, to untie his sandals. But this Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John pulling no punches. There will also be a baptism of fire. He's he's speaking about hell. Remember, baptism is being immersed or dipped or soaked, uh, sprinkled in something to take on its qualities. And the beauty and profoundness of this imagery is that that what God the Father longs to do is to have us united to Christ and that Christ will fill us, immerse us in His Spirit so that we begin to take on His qualities. This is how our hearts are going to be transformed. Now, our culture, this is not something alien. This is something we can understand. Just this past week, um, I was listening to some uh, random music and heard Paul McCartney's song, Happy With You. It starts out, I sat around all day. I, got, I used to get stoned. I like to get wasted, but these days I don't because I'm happy with you. I got lots of good things to do. I walked around angry. I used to feel bad, but nowadays my days don't have to be sad because I'm happy with you. I got lots of good things to do. So even our culture understands, our secular culture understands the power of a love in your life. 
the gospel is offering us the same thing, but to the nth and most glorious degree. We can be changed in our behavior. We can become better people because the right person enters our life. How much more so when the God of this universe, the Father God who loves us and is willing to give up His own Son and this Jesus who's willing out of sheer love to leave all the glory and comforts of heaven to come down to pursue you, to have His goodness pursue you all the days of your life and to seal what He's done, what He's invited you to. If if you've become baptized and you have this outward symbol, if you're taking communion as part of church life, that you're not just participating in this outward ritual, but Jesus also offers you and fills you with His Spirit so that those outer symbols can just become meaningful reflections of what is actually going on on the inside. And so what the Gospel is inviting you and I to is to experience what Paul McCartney experiences but to the most real and ultimate and lasting and powerful degree as we know the love of God in our lives through Christ, through His Spirit, by grace, through faith. And so the Gospel connects us to the Holy Spirit. And so John leaves us this last imagery of Jesus. That Jesus will be like a farmer with His winnowing fork in His hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, just in one sermon, three imageries pertaining to to eternity, both hell and heaven. Winnowing is still a modern farming technique, and, and so if you're not familiar with it, the farmer has a pitchfork, and they designate a threshing floor, and they wait for just the right amount of wind And they toss the wheat up into the air. And from the wheat, the heavier grain falls to the ground. And the light, unwanted chaff gets blown away by the wind. And what John is saying here, what Matthew is teaching us by recounting John's sermon here to the Sanhedrin, is that the difference between those who are reconciled to God, who will be welcomed to eternity with Him, and those who will face His wrath forever, there's a weightiness to them that causes them to fall to the ground and to be gathered up by the the farmer Christ. What's that weightiness? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. And so you can do no wrong as making part of your daily conversation with God. In fact, make it, if it could become your habit the first thing that you whisper out of your mouth as you wake up, Lord, fill me with your spirit today. You can do no wrong in praying that prayer because it's a relational prayer, wanting to be close to God and to have him continue to transform your heart from the inside out. And then we go about our days applying this to our hearts. And really what the Spirit does, His job is to apply Christ to our hearts, to keep applying the love of the Father. If you're going to a stressful work environment and there are heavy demands and even creates stress and anxiety, it's in those moments that you need Christ applied to your heart and it's the Spirit of God who does that. 
And so no matter what criticism comes your way, there's a shield about your heart. Okay, I can listen to this feedback and take the good from it and learn from the bad of it, and it's not going to destroy me. It's not going to wreck my day. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to keep growing and maturing because I know I'm beloved in Christ and He has a purpose for me even at work today. And in fact, even beyond that, God wants to use me to be a wonderful influence in the people at work. Or maybe it's home, you're making a home and the kids are just extra screaming and crazy that day. And, and just to cry out to God and say, God, I know you are a good father and in this moment where I'm struggling to be a good parent, remind me of how you love me. How have you been patient with me? And that that, that would bring about some sanity and some per, per perspective as I'm dealing with the chaos of this messy living room and, and, and these unchanged diapers and these crying kids and so forth. That's what the Spirit does. As we walk in the Spirit, the Spirit longs to continue to apply Christ to our hearts at home, at work, in our rest. So, I invite you with me to keep learning to pray this prayer. Lord, and if you want to even just pray right now with me, Lord, may Your Spirit keep transforming my heart with Your Gospel. Amen.